Good to be with you again this evening. We want to come back now to 2 Corinthians. And we want to be in chapter 2, but I wanted to turn to a verse in chapter 7 that kind of summarizes the difficulties that Paul was experiencing and difficulties that I think all of us as believers can relate to. Uh, there are three times in this letter that Paul gives a long list of the things, the struggles of his life. And it's in chapter 4 and in chapter 6 and chapter 11. And we'll look at those as we get to them. But he kind of summarizes it at the end of verse 5 of chapter 7. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Can you relate to that? Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. And, and this is a summary of what it is to be in the Christian life. It's a spiritual conflict. It's spiritual battle. And Paul talked in, in chapter 1. We didn't read it this morning. But in verse 9 of chapter 1, yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. Now, this is interesting because what he's referring to here, we don't know exactly what the details of it are. Acts chapter 19 gives us a little bit of a summary of the, the, the big uprising. You remember the silversmith Demetrius caused that big riot in the theater. And, and can you imagine a group of people? I've been in that theater in Ephesus. It holds probably 50,000. And, and all of them chanting, great is Diana of the Ephesians for two hours. Non-stop, Luke tells us. You talk about a pep rally. I'd get tired of saying it after a couple times, but over and over. So it's, it's hypnotic suggestion. This is, these people were just under a hypnosis that was demonic. And, and, so, and then they wanted to get Paul in there, and Paul was willing to go, but the believers wouldn't let him in. And I think, we think, this is probably what he's referring to, and, and the sentence of death was right there. Why? Verse 9 tells us that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So Paul had persecution from the outside. He'll talk about that in a little more detail in some of these other summary lists that we're referring to in these other chapters. But as we were referring to this morning, not only was he having the persecution from the unbelieving world, satanic persecution from the outside, he had fears within. What were his fears within? Well, he tells us there at the, in, in chapter 2, verse 13, I had no rest in my spirit. Have you ever had a night where there was no rest in your spirit because you were struggling with prayer for someone? And if you haven't had that, why not? <laughs> it's part of the Christian life, you know. To be burdened for someone enough to, you know, fast and pray for them. That they might be saved. Certainly you know somebody, one person in your life, and, and I do, that the people that are burdened like this, that are in life struggles, in the clutches of warfare. Paul has just described there was a door of opportunity open to him in Troas. He uses the same phrase he uses in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians with reference to Ephesus. He comes to Ephesus and a great door and effectual is open to him for service. When he comes to Troas, he says here, and the Lord opens a wide door for evangelism. All kinds of people could get saved. But you know what? He was so burdened for the Corinthians and for their response to his first letter that he didn't even stay in Troas. 
Because he says, Titus, my brother, didn't come with a report. I had sent Titus to Corinth, to you Corinthians, to see how you were responding to my letter. And he hadn't come back, and so I had no rest in my spirit. So I gave up on that opportunity for ministry. Gives us insight into the heart of this apostle, doesn't it? He had a burden for people. He felt for people, and particularly for God's people, the saints. And that just bubbles out of 2 Corinthians, I think, in so many places. He's telling them, he said, I'm concerned about you. Now, of course, we haven't gotten to chapter 7 yet, the happy ending to this, you know, when Titus does come back. When he's in Macedonia, Titus does come back with a glowing report, and Paul says, well, we probably should see it. I'm, I'm telling you about it. So that's what he says here, just a couple of verses in chapter 7. We'll come back to chapter 2. But he says, verse 5, remember we said chapter 7, verse 5, really picks up after verse 13 of chapter 2. And we're saying that some commentaries will even describe 2.14 to 7.4 as a parenthesis. I wouldn't go so far as to call it a parenthesis. I think it's a continuation of the flow of thought. And it fits in with what he's dealing with. He kind of just takes off on this tangent, if you will, on the glory of God in the new covenant and what it is to be a a new covenant minister and and what the characteristics are like. But now in verse 5 of chapter 7, he comes back to Titus' report. And he says, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, they had left Troas and crossed the Aegean Sea to Macedonia. Our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. But, nevertheless, God. Oh, I like those two words. Nevertheless, God. Think about that when that great struggle in prayer comes in your life. If you haven't had them, they'll come. If you keep walking with the Lord and serving Him, they'll come. And when you're just exasperated and perplexed and not understanding, Lord, why is there not a change happening in this brother or sister's life? Why are they going through this suffering and trial? Nevertheless, God, he's still in control, see. That's what enables you to go back to sleep. Enables me to go back to sleep in those nights after prayer, right? Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus and not only by his coming but also by the consolation with which he has comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire your mourning your zeal for me so that I rejoiced even more he goes on to say my trials weren't taken away the the persecution didn't stop the difficulties didn't end the book of Acts will tell us a lot of the details of that right The troubles didn't end. So how come he's rejoicing? How come he's exceedingly joyful? You notice he adds that qualifier, that adjective, exceedingly. Because he has this heavenly perspective of what the Christian life is is about, see? He recognizes this is an enormous victory for God and for grace and for this brother and for the Corinthian assembly and for the apostle and for the church and for you and me. You see how the ripple effect goes? And that's what brings us back then to chapter 2, verse 14. 
Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And we spent a lot of time on that this morning. Alluding back to Psalm 68, very possibly. Certainly Numbers 9. You could go to Exodus 33 and 34. Moses told the Lord, if you don't go with us, we're not going. <laughs> the Lord had said, I'll send my angel. You go ahead into the promise. He said, no, if you don't go, we're not going. We're going to stay right here. <laughs> Have you ever felt that way? In ministry, where you say, Lord, I'm not taking another step in this until I know you're in this and you're going with me. Or I'm really going with you. That's what it means to walk in fellowship with Christ. And to me, and I say this especially to our young people, that's an adventure. You want adventure in your life? I was, when I was a young person, I was an adventure seeker. You know, always trying to get as close to death and the ragged edge and all of that. Well, none of that pales. It all pales in comparison to a walk with Christ and serving him and reaching souls that are lost. I appreciate Brother's statement earlier on the burden for the lost, for others, for people that are hurting, for the downcast. We're surrounded by them. Probably no time in recent history have we had, maybe since World War II or right after the war, have we had so many downcast, despairing, depressed people, including professing Christians, suffering spiritual depression. Do you care? Or do we just say, well, I'm glad it's not me. Or I'm glad it's not my wife. Glad it's not my son or daughter. Or do we care? The world wants to know. Paul cared because God cares, because Christ cares, and Christ was in his heart, see? Beloved, I'm, what I'm saying to you, I'm saying to myself, this, this challenges me. I hope it challenges you. I'm not trying to get anybody down in the dumps on themselves in their spiritual life, but you see what a challenge this letter is? You can't read 2 Corinthians and ho-hum and sit back and Paul's not going to let you do that. The Holy Spirit's not going to let us do that. This is real life here. But don't forget, whatever else we think about, when we're going through that difficult trial and perplexity in the Christian life, and we don't understand why we don't think God's working in this situation. And we may even be tempted to think, and this is a bad thought, but we do get tempted to think this, where is he? Is he on vacation? Where is he? Just because we don't always get the answer to our prayer the way we prayed it or in the timing that we expected. We don't put our timetable on God, number one. His timetable, his thoughts are way ahead of ours. Isaiah, Isaiah 55, right? As far as the heavens are above the earth, so far his thought, his thought he, he's all, and he's always good. You and I aren't. Psalm 119.68, Lord, thou art good, and you always do good. Nobody else like that. Nobody on the planet, nobody in the universe like that, and that's why I'm glad to know him. <laughs> How about you? I'm glad to know him, and that's somebody I can walk with, and that's somebody I can trust, and that's somebody I can stay so close to him that when he lifts up the heel on that next step, I'm putting my step right in his. That's where we want to be. Serving our Lord, see. And it's a triumphant march when we do that. 
And, and don't forget in verse 14, that always, did you see that always? Mine's circled in my Bible so I don't forget. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. If we stay in Christ and stay close to Christ, there is always triumph. We may not see it until maybe a month, two, three, a year later, but it's always triumph. Believe it, beloved, because that's what the Word of God says. That's a promise, isn't it? And then through us diffuses the fragrance. It's just a picture of that holy incense. You've all been studying the tabernacle, I understand, right? And the incense altar, the golden altar, and that special apothecary, as the new, or as the King James puts it, right, that special ingredients that the Israelites couldn't use for anything else. The sisters couldn't use it for their perfumes, and the brothers couldn't use it for anything else. It could only be reserved for God. When they smelled that incense, they thought of God. And it went up above the tabernacle, and the whole camp, I'm sure, could smell it. It was just amazing. And it's the fragrance of the knowledge of God in verse 14. And in verse 15, it's the fragrance of Christ himself. But did you notice what that fragrance is being diffused through? People, Christians like you and me. Now, that sounds like that's not going to work too well when we think about it. And if we're really honest with ourselves and we really understand our own weaknesses and frailty, he's going to get into that. We'll probably get into it like Wednesday night or so, maybe next Sunday morning. Earthen jars, jars of clay, this earthly tent. That's what he's talking about, these bodies. They're frail. They're weak. And that's why he'll, the Lord will tell him in chapter 12, verse 9, My power is made perfect through your weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. I'm not taking away the thorn out of your side. I'm going to give you the grace and leaving the thorn, see. That's not how we think. That's not how the health and wealth gospel tells us to think. The health and wealth gospel tells us that if we're not healthy and wealthy all the time, then we got there's something wrong with our faith because God wants us to be healthy and wealthy all the time, right? That's not what the apostle Paul experienced. That's not what any of the apostles experienced. That's not what any of the saints in the early church experienced, beloved. That's not what saints throughout the history of the church have experienced. I don't know who these people are that are claiming that, but... It's not consistent with the New Testament. The New Testament, if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. What verse am I quoting? Romans 8.18, right? If we suffer with him now, we will reign with him then. We're not reigning now. The God of this world, Satan, is being permitted there's a time frame God's got his own timetable we will reign with Christ when he comes back we suffer now we endure we persevere and we can only do it by the grace of God you see why we need his grace you see why it's so wonderful to know the grace of God 
You see why legalism doesn't work? It never did. And so Paul says he's diffusing the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. You think about your life and testimony. This is one of the pictures the New Testament uses. You and I leave an impression wherever we go in our sphere of influence. You leave an impression one way or the other. Well, you say, well, then, I want to leave an impression of Christ, don't you? How do, I di- how do I get there? How do I make sure I'm consistent with that? Well, he'll get there, particularly in chapter 3, verse 18, and, and we'll get there, Lord willing, in, in our studies this week. But it's spending time with the Lord in his word, and it requires quiet meditation and memorization and reflection on the person of Christ through his word. You've got to find a place and a time in our schedules to do this and we live in a busy generation, a busy world. I remember when the computers first came out in our business in 1984. Well, AutoCAD, at least. We already had some, some of the, the tabletop computers for word processing before that. But, and, and, of course, now it's just commonplace. But I remember we were told, man, we're going to save time. We're going to have all this extra time because the computer's going to do so much work for us, and we're going to save paper. And you know what? It didn't do either one. The email, you were supposed to be able to read the emails on the screen, but, you know, my dad, I go down this big stack of paper. Dad, what are the, well, I printed out all the emails. Well, what did you print them for? The whole idea with email was you weren't supposed to have to write the letter and use the papers. <laughs> well, I'm afraid, you know, the computer may not turn on or it may break, and then I would lose the correspondence. And then, you know, we keep adding more and more into our world. Beloved, you've got to work time in your schedules. Otherwise, the, you know what your fragrance is going to be? A stench. <laughs> it's not going to draw people to Christ. People need to be looking at us in our life and our testimony and being drawn to the Savior even if we don't say a word. Just looking at our conduct and our character. That's a challenge, isn't it? So that's the first picture he uses. And then he goes on to describe that the, the impact, the influence is not really... Our responsibility, our responsibility is to make sure that the fragrance of Christ is what's being manifested and and not the fragrance of self or some man that we're elevating and putting on a pedestal, right? It's the Lord. It's the fragrance of Christ. But look at, he says, for we are to God the fragrance of Christ, verse 15, among those who are being saved and among those who are are perishing, both in the continuous present tense. It's kind of interesting that salvation is a continuous act and so is perishing, right? And both of them have a different, it's the two roads, two destinies chart again, isn't it? You remember that? No, none of you are old enough to, you got to go back to the early 1900s to remember the two roads, two destinies chart. Is it, is it on the internet? Can you even get it on YouTube? I don't know, but, but yeah, you can. Okay, thank you. <laughs> the two roads, two destinies chart. Yeah, well, it, and that's Psalm 1. And that's Matthew 7, right? The broad road and the narrow road. And that's Proverbs chapter 1 through chapter 9. The way of the fool and the to foolishness and the way of wisdom. Two roads, two destinies. 
It almost seems like oversimplification, but the Lord knows how simple our minds are, maybe. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, see. The lost are dead spiritually already. But it's leading to a worse death, isn't it? They're dead spiritually now, walking around there. They're alive physically, and they're alive in their soul, but they're dead spiritually. That is, they're dead to God. There's no relationship with God. That's where the spirit is, where we have contact with God. That died for them when Adam sinned. They were born in Adam. That's why they need to be born again. But it's leading to a worse death, eternal separation from God. Right now, it's temporary. But if they stay in that condition, it's eternal. So it's a death leading to death. He's accurate, isn't it? That's those who are perishing. So you notice he starts with the saved and then the perishing in verse 15. Verse 16, this, this is a technique the Holy Spirit uses in the Bible, by the way. He starts with the second one, then he comes back to the first one. So it's A, B, B, A, like this. That's how our minds think. We were just left off with the perishing, so what's the first one we're thinking about in verse 16? The perishing. So he's going to deal with those first, and then he's going to deal with the being saved in the second part of verse 16. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. Life, the initial life, is being born again. When they trust in the Lord as Savior, they have, they have life. But it's leading to eternal life with the Lord, with the saints, on a redeemed earth. So glad I'm going to be on the earth. I have no interest in floating on a cloud and playing a harp. No offense to you musicians, but I, I just have no interest. I'm not built for the clouds. I'm built for terra firma, you know, the earth. And, and I can't wait for a redeemed earth. It's going to be better than what Adam and Eve saw, I believe, in the Garden of Eden. To the one the aroma of death, the other aroma of life, and he concludes verse 16, and who's sufficient for these things? <laughs> when you think about this, I mean, really, beloved, think about it. If we only knew this truth, but think about this possibility. Think about some of the people that you work with in your particular immediate sphere of interest and influence, you know, outside of your house. Be thinking right now, maybe you know, in your mind, name four or five names, people that you are in regular contact with during the week that are unbelievers. And have you ever thought that you may be the only influence they have to come to Christ? And if they don't see Christ in you, they're going to perish for eternity because you didn't influence them for Christ? Now, we don't know that that's true, of course. But it's possible. We may find that out in the judgment seat of Christ. We don't know. We don't know how much the Lord will reveal to us of what we didn't do that we should have done, the sins of omission. And that's what's on the heart of the Apostle Paul. You know, it's interesting. When he, when he lists in chapter 11 all the different things he suffered, you know, being stoned, verse 25, and shipwrecked a night and a day in the deep, and journeys off in perils, waters, and so forth, in perils among false brethren at the end of verse 26. So these are people who, they're claiming to be brethren, but they're false. And he's in perils from them, see? 
pretenders claiming to be Christians, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness, often in hunger and thirst and fastings, often in cold and nakedness. How many times have you and I suffered these kind of things for our Lord, see? Inconvenience. And then he adds, besides the other things, verse 28, what comes upon me, how often? Daily. My deep concern for all the churches. Now, if you know people in more than one assembly, and a lot of you do, and so we can think of Christians in various assemblies, but you think of all the different churches of, a, of the Lord's people that Paul knew, and he's burdened for all of them. Now, how does he have time to be concerned about them with the things that list he just gave us about the things he's suffering? You and I'd be complaining about our pains and sores and, and welts and everything and be bitter against this and bitter against that. Why didn't they leave me? Well, maybe you wouldn't be like that, but I would be. Apostle Paul says, you know what? And on top of all that, being concerned about all you Christians burdens me all the time in prayer. This is what we aspire to, don't we? I hope we all aspire to that kind of walk in life and testimony. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. Yeah, well, the Apostle Paul had been to the third heaven. I haven't been to the third heaven. I know, I've said that to the Lord, too. And maybe if I'd been to the third heaven and seen your glory, I'd have this kind of burden for the churches like Paul had. Maybe, maybe so. But we still have the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit working in the Apostle Paul is working in every one of us who's born again. And to have an increasing desire and burden, not only for the lost, but for Christians who are suffering through sometimes things that are unbelievable. And to intercede in prayer for them. You know what a privilege that is? Our Savior is the advocate, he says in 1 John 2, 1 and 2. And that's what he's doing right now as our high priest. What a privilege it is to join with him in interceding for somebody who we get no benefit from. And the fact that, that we're praying for them, they may not know it, they may not thank us. But we're joining with our Savior in his work and what he's doing. And we're participating in his heart and his Burden for the saints. Wow. That, that's why this is the adventure of a lifetime, what he's describing here. Not without pain, not without inconvenience, not without difficulties. But what is all that compared to the great cosmic battle that's going on? And we are marching, if we're following Christ, marching on to victory and triumph in him. But who's sufficient for this? The answer is no one. You're not sufficient for it. I'm not sufficient for it. No one is. When you consider what, what the responsibility is here, we're talking about eternal souls. Who's sufficient for that? Who's sufficient for leading the Sunday school program? Who's sufficient for leading Awana? Who's sufficient for giving out one track down there on the beach? None of us are. It's only by the grace of God. Amen? It's only by the grace of God. And Paul, of all people, he's the apostle of grace. His whole conversion was just 
surrounded by grace. Every time he gives his testimony, he brings in grace. Check it out and see all five locations, three of them in Acts. 1 Timothy 1 and in Philippians 3, he gives credit to the grace of God. So that's what he says, and that's what the first six verses of chapter 3 go on to answer. But before he gets to that, you say, well, you skip verse 17, <laughs> chapter 2. Well, I think verse 17 in chapter 2 is the introduction to chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and they're linked together. But it's a negative he starts out with in verse 17, isn't it? And what he's beginning to do here is to expose these false teacher, false apostles, these pretender apostles that he, we looked at this morning in chapter 11. He's beginning to expose them and their method, and he's going to contrast, he's going to use by exposing their method and then contrasting their method with his method, he's going to show the Christians, you and I, the true method, God's method of new covenant ministry. Now that to me is a fascinating technique, just the technique in itself. It's a great teaching tool for you parents or you who are teaching in Sunday school. It's a great teaching tool. The Lord knows how to teach. He knows how he made us. So he says a negative. First, we are not as, and I wish he says the next two, I wish he said as so few. That's not what it says, is it? We're not as so many. It's hard to believe. Already, the church is hardly not even 30 years old yet. This letter is written maybe 57. The church started in 30, 27 years old. And there are already many that are teaching error. And they're stalking the Apostle Paul. And they're discrediting him. And they're falsely accusing him to bring down the message and to dilute the message. Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun, and there isn't. That's still what goes on, isn't it? And he calls them peddlers. We are not as so many peddling the word of God. Some versions translate that huckster. Now, neither one of those words or words we come across too much. Most of you probably haven't been to a Middle Eastern bazaar. Maybe a flea market gets a little close to that idea, but in our flea markets, they don't holler at you and urge you to come to your, their table, do they? Around here, they don't in Texas anyway. They do over here, okay. Well, then you got a little bit of a picture of a huckster or a peddler. For me, the, the clearest picture of it was in, in 74 when I went to Loyola University in New Orleans. And, you know, here I'm an 18-year-old, and some of us get on the trolley car and go downtown to experience New Orleans. And, and wow, what an experience. Not anything I recommend. And here you go down the streets down there, and the hucksters are on every outside. Every, come in here, come in here, come in here. And were they interested in my spiritual welfare? Were they even interested in my physical welfare? What were they interested in? My pocketbook, that's right, my wallet right there. So you see the picture? What are these peddlers of the word of God interested in? Making money, making money using the word of God and using the people of God to make money and to exalt themselves. 
Do we have anything like that going on in our world? Do you have to think very far? And it's interesting, you know, even, even some genuine believers who write books and sell them. That, that, that's such a dangerous thing. And, and you, you really have to examine your motive. I remember being asked five or six years ago to, to write something, and, and I examined my heart before the Lord and said, Lord, if I do this, I'm going to do it for the wrong reason. I'm going to do it, if I'm honest, I'm going to do it for self-elevation. So I'm not going to do it. Now, maybe in the future, if I'm able to judge that and, and put that and do, deal with it, and the Lord still wants me to do it, maybe I'll do it. But hey, we're not about exalting ourselves. We're not about self-promotion, are we? We're about Christ promotion. <laughs> We're promoting Christ. We're pointing people to him, the fragrance of Christ, you see. But these peddlers were doing that, and as we said this morning, they probably were Judaizers. They were probably people who had a long pedigree linked back to Abraham. We saw that in chapter 11, claiming to be Israelites, true Israelites, you know, questioned Paul's integrity as an Israelite. We're the real ones linked to the Old Testament. We're linked to the Abrahamic covenant. And if you want to know, you better listen to us, not Paul. I mean, even I was given a book to, to look at and, and review a year ago or so, written by a particular pastor in another part of the country. I'm not going to say who. I'm not going to identify him. And it was a book for new Christians and having their Christian walk. And, and he's saying, it's so clear, it's so subtle. It's so clever. I mean, and, I, and I'm sure he meant well, but he's saying, all you need is this book to get you through your early stages of Christian life. You just read this book. You don't need his book. You need this book. This is the book that has life. Now, you say that, is that just being semantic? No, I think there's more than just semantic question there. He's drawing disciples after himself, whether he realized it or not. And, and I'll say he didn't realize it. I'll give him that much. I'll say he did it without realizing it. But you see how subtle, you see how easy, you see how awful our flesh is? So these false teachers came in and, and evidently they had charismatic gifts. He'll talk about that in chapter 12. Evidently they made a great show outwardly, just like the ones do today. And Paul's gonna contrast, yeah, but new covenant ministry is a ministry of the inward of the heart. It's not outward appearance. It's what's happening inward. And then eventually what's inward works itself out. But we're not looking for the outside. We're looking for the inside manifesting transformation and change. It's totally different, isn't it? So he's, he contrasts himself and the true apostles. We're not like that. But as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. You see three things? Sincerity, genuineness. He's genuinely concerned about them. He's not trying to manipulate them. He's not trying to use them for selfish purposes. He cares. And he is careful to be doing this as from God. That's why he tells us in chapter 1, verse 1, he was an apostle by the will of God. God called him to this. He didn't set himself aside. 
He didn't designate himself an apostle. Who would dare to do that? But these men were. And he spoke in the sight of God in Christ. In other words, he was aware that God was watching him. God knew his thoughts. God knew his motives. God knew what he said, what he did. That's an awareness of God's presence. And it's in Christ. And then he begins chapter 3, verse 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Why does he say it that way? That word again is in there. Apparently the false teachers were saying, yeah, Paul, here he is commending himself again, and you don't need to listen to him. See, it's all about himself. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? In other words, he's, he's bringing up the statement that they're accusing him of doing, the false teachers. Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Do we need a letter from you to prove that we're really apostles, he said? <laughs> you see, the false teachers were using something that is a true method. Common letters of commendation is something we see in the book of Acts, and it's God's way of validating ones in ministry, but that was even being used by the false teachers. They'd get other Pharisees to sign it or get, get a letter, Gamaliel or some big name, Hillel or Shammai, sign some big rabbinical school and take that around, see? And they were abusing what was a good methodology and using it for themselves too. And Paul says, do I need a letter from you? You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. And we see here the second metaphor for Christian testimony or illustration. First one was an aroma of Christ. The second one is a living epistle, a living letter. You realize your life is a letter, a living letter written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. And it's being read and known by all men. It's supposed to be... <laughs> They're supposed to know about us. We're supposed to be in public. We're supposed to be in the view of the unbeliever. It's part of how God brings people to Christ, right? A living epistle. You ever thought of yourself? What's the gospel according to you or to me? If they were to look at our life, would they see the gospel in our life? Would they see that, well, no, I'm, I'm saved only by grace. I don't deserve this. And so they see a humility and a, and a recognition of the, the fear of the Lord and, and desiring to want to please him. Do they see that in our life? It makes us examine ourselves, doesn't it? He goes on to say, clearly you are an epistle of Christ, verse 3, ministered by us, the apostles, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. He says, Paul says, you Corinthians, the, the very reason you're even Christians is because of our ministry. We brought the gospel to you. Now you need to see if we're really genuine. You wouldn't even be born again. You see his logic? You see what he's doing? He's putting it right on. He says, we brought the gospel. We were the pioneer missionaries. We brought the gospel to you. And now you're questioning whether you're saved because of the ministry we did. That validates the fact that you're saved validates who we are as the Lord's messengers. You see what he's saying? 
And not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Don't ever forget that, beloved. Our sufficiency, that's what he's answering the question up in verse 16, isn't he? Who also made us sufficient, how? As ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Well, I, I intended to look at the two places in the Old Testament where the new covenant comes out so clearly. And there isn't time to do that, so I'm going to give you a homework assignment. <laughs> but in Jeremiah chapter 31, if you haven't read these verses, beginning in chapter verse 31 to 34 of Jeremiah 31, and then Ezekiel chapter 36, 26 to 28 or 29 right in there, you can look those up for yourself. That's what he's referring to here. There's only one new covenant, beloved. There's been a little bit of confusion among some of our early dispensational writers, unfortunately, and, and God bless them, but they, they tried to say, well, there's a distinction between the church and Israel, and so how can the new covenant was with Israel? How can we be part of the new covenant? But here in First or 2 Corinthians 3 and in Hebrews chapter 8 and chapter 10, it's clear that there's only one new covenant. There's only one old covenant. There's only one new covenant. The old covenant has been set aside by God, and it's been replaced by one new covenant. You say, well, then how are we brought in? I'm not an Israelite. No. But Jesus Christ is. You can't have a bigger descendant of Israel and Judah than the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't forget, the gospel is, you and I have been joined to him, haven't we? Romans chapter 6, among other places. So because of our union with Christ, we've been brought into two aspects, and the, and the New Testament's clear about this, two of the aspects of the new covenant. Eternal forgiveness of sins, that's here and in Hebrews 8 and 10, and the indwelling Holy Spirit, here and in Hebrews 8 and 10. Both those were referenced in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. In fact, I think that's probably Ezekiel 36 is what the Lord had in mind when he confronted Nicodemus in John 3. He says, you're a teacher of Israel, and you don't know about the new birth? It's in your Bible. It's in your Hebrew Bible. Read Ezekiel 36. See? It was prophesied it would come. The land promises are still to the nation of Israel. The land promises are never quoted in the New Testament to the church. We get the whole planet, so I, I, I'm not worried about that. We're going to reign with Christ on the whole planet. Israel's going to get still those land promises associated with that great land bridge between the three continents of Africa, Europe, and Asia. That was God's plan from eternity. But we've been brought into the value of the new covenant. Don't miss this, beloved, because it will affect your own ministry and service for the Lord. This is very important. The Corinthians were missing this. And they were falling into the legalism of these false teachers is because of it. They were missing ministry by the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. Now, beginning in verse 7, chapter 3, all the way through chapter 4, verse 6. If you want to read ahead, that's where we're going to go on Tuesday night in the will of the Lord. He's going to contrast the glory on the face of Moses. When he remember, he went up on Mount Sinai to get the, to get the Torah, to get the law. And, and his face shone. The Shekinah glory was on his face when he came down the mountain. And the people of the camp, they couldn't even look at him. It was 
But we gaze at verse 6 of chapter 4, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Moses, the face of Jesus Christ. So spend time gazing at him. That's what he says in 3.18. And as you gaze at the face of the Lord Jesus Christ in the word of God, you know what happens? A miracle happens in your heart. You're transformed. Metamorpho, the, the word for change from a caterpillar to a butterfly. It's a metamorphosis. The Holy Spirit metamorphosizes us. Same word in Romans 12.1. And conforms us into the image of Christ progressively from one glory to another. Wow. You want to be a part of that? That's something I want to be a part of. So thank you for coming out tonight. We'll ask the Lord's blessing. And, and I'm thankful, Yami, Sister Yami, I'm thankful for being here to participate in, in a great event. I was sorry I wasn't here when, when Megan and, and Rach went out on their deal early in the year. But this is a great thing. This is, this is, and it's a great example to our young people. Okay, so Father, we thank you, O Lord, for the word of God. We thank you for the, the mission of the church. We thank you. Oh, Lord, that the sufficiency for this mission isn't in us. It's in you. And we need to abide in Christ. Without, apart from me, you can do nothing, he said. But in me, in you, Lord Jesus, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Wow. Wow. So help us, Lord, to appreciate, enter into what you've called us to be and to do for you. To the glory of God. We pray in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.